Hello there, fair podcast listener, and welcome to this episode 29 of the Emotion at Work podcast. Um, uh, before we get into the podcast proper, there are a few things that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to make a couple of apologies, um, share some appreciation, and then make a request. So a couple of apologies. So one is, uh, it's very rare, I don't think I've ever overly edited um, an episode of the Emotion at Work podcast until this one. Um, so when I started recording, um, I was looking at the waveform on the audio recording device I used thinking, that doesn't look very big. And then I realised that the microphone I selected wasn't the one that was in front of my face, it was the one that was about a metre away. So I'm a bit tinny for the first, say, three minutes. Um, and then in the background, I then closed down that recording opened up a new one and then you'll hear me much much clearer much like I am now so apologies for the audio quality right at the beginning it picks up um, as it gets a bit better um, after about two or three minutes I think of the podcast going um, second apology is the sporadicness of my um, publications recently so normally I like to publish every two weeks on a Thursday every other Thursday is my goal and I've not hit that for a while. Um, as the regular listeners of the podcast will know, I've had some trials and tribulations with moving house. And as you'll hear about more in the episode to come, uh, I've moved house. Yay! Um, uh, but what that's meant is that is I've had other priorities that I needed to focus on um, that wasn't recording additional podcast episodes. Plus, I was without the internet for a while, so that made it a little bit tricky too. Um my appreciation then is I'm always blown away by the fact that this podcast gets between 150 and 200 listens every week. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you very much, loyal listeners, for your support um, and for sticking with the Emotional Work podcast. It, it picks up new followers every week and it, it, its listening numbers get bigger and bigger every week. So I just wanted to say thank you for, for sticking with the, with the podcast. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or um, recommendations for guests or anything like that, then please, please, or areas you want us to talk about or explore, then please, please um, let me know. And then my request. So... The, the it looks like this podcast works well for the listener um, in the way that I see it being shared online the comments that I get back both anecdotally to me but also what I see people sharing when they share the podcast the listener numbers are, are high the the number of uh, new listeners that we pick up is um, is increasing and followers of the podcast increase as well so what my request is if you'd be willing if you'd be willing please share the love for the emotional work podcast by leaving us a review um, and, and rating us whether that be on itunes overcast stitcher podbean or wherever it is that you get your podcast from uh, if you leave us a review it helps other people find the great content that you already enjoy and that's it for me. Um, episode 29, we ha we're continuing with our linguist theme. So we've got a, another linguist on uh, as a guest this week um, to, to add to the other ones that we've had on before because I think it's a, a much uh, needed to be explored topic. So episode 29, here we go. Welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and I'm very excited today because um, today's episode is, is building on a number of aspects that have been covered off in previous episodes of the podcast. Um, also though it's picking up on some of the things that I think are so common in the workplace especially um, in uh, workplace in teams 
and then also in wider organizational cultures. And also, as, a, as the majority of my listeners, I think, are working in kind of the human resources or training and development type um, or organizational development and change world, I think the topics that we're going to be discussing today are going to be particularly relevant um, for, for our audience. So I'm, I'm very, very excited about, um, about where we're going to go today. So we're, we're taking a linguistics angle. So already on the podcast in the past, we've had uh, Samuel Lana, who came on and talked about um, forensic linguistics. Um, we also had Jessica Robles come to talk about interaction. And we've had Professor Dawn Archer uh, on. And then there's me been talking about um, some, uh, some interactional aspects as well. And so today, um, our guest is also from, from the research background, uh, and that is Mr. Derek Basefield. So let's get him on the air. So hello, Derek. How are you? I'm fine, Phil. And thank you very much indeed for having me on today. Oh, I'm very excited to have you on today. I'm really looking forward to, um, to what we're going to talk about. But before we get there, let's keep the listeners in suspense. So always I open the Emotional Work Podcast with an unexpected yet innocuous question. Okay. And a couple of weeks ago, I went out to Twitter and said, I need to build out my bank of questions. Give me some suggestions, big wide world. Um, and today's one comes in from Christine Loker. Okay. Uh, and she's at Christine Loker on Twitter. So a nice, easy uh, Twitter handle if you wanted to find her. And her unexpected yet innocuous question is, if you had lots of money, what would you never outsource and why? Wow, that's interesting. If I had lots of money, what would I never outsource and why? Mm-hmm. Um, the flippant version of me would basically say um, going on holiday, because obviously that's something you can only experience yourself. And if I had lots of money, that's ah, what yeah, I'd okay. be doing. That's what yeah. I'd be doing. However, however, if we're talking about this from a professional rather than a personal perspective, if so I had it can lots be of either, money, to be fair. Well, you know, if it's if it's professional, then obviously I wouldn't outsource basically the way in which I choose to go on holiday with my family, because uh, we'd love mm-hmm. to do that ourselves. Um, but if it's so that's the personal obviously we would and and we would we would engage in a series of not just basically foreign holidays but a series of uh you know a, a experiences you know kind of cycling mm. cycling lake canoeing all these kind of things that we've done on occasion when we've had time and resource but you know we just don't get an opportunity to do often enough but if it's um if it's professional uh, from a professional working perspective what mm-hmm. if i had if i had a huge amount of money or ideally an unlimited amount of money what would i not outsource it's got to be um, the, uh, the the it's got to be the the expertise that I see in my team and the passion that they actually bring and the commitment they actually bring to teaching to research to knowledge exchange. These things are really hard to find, easy to lose if mishandled, and they're things that you simply cannot outsource um, with any. We, you know, with any surety that you're going to get the same level of, of passion, commitment, and therefore effect and response. So it's literally those things that which are impossible to outsource are, um, you know, basically the absolute, mm. uh, it's all of that kind of wealth of experience and that wealth uh, and, and what comes with it, the kind of the passion that comes with it from your colleagues. That's simply, you can outsource it, but what you then, then tend to do is you then lose um, significant, um, a significant amount of effectiveness. Okay, I like that. That's really good. Okay. Um, so the, I, I have a slight advantage. Um, yeah, I also now have a slight disadvantage in that because I say it's an unexpected yet innocuous question, okay. but I get to see it in advance because I choose it. So yeah. um, I hadn't thought about it from a professional point of view. So I'm going to start with that because okay. that's, uh, that's the unexpectedness for me. Um, and I think it would be... Hmm. Go on, you've got me in suspense now. Yeah, so I'm trying to decide what what would it be. So, so I think it would. Um, 
it would definitely be the interaction with other people. So, yeah. you know, if there's one thing I enjoy most, it's, 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 it's enjoying conversations and discussions and exploration yeah. with people, hmm. whether that be in a coaching capacity or in a consulting sure. um, way, that sort of stuff. Um, cause there's plenty of things that are easy to come to mind to, that I would outsource, you know, admin. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, I think professionally it would be, yeah, interacting with, uh, with other humans. Um, cause that's, that brings me a lot of, a lot of joy. Yeah. Um, if it was, if it was personally, I came at it from a really different angle. Mine would be cooking. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely adamant that you should outsource ironing. I'm adamant that nobody in their life should ever have to iron ever. Because okay. it's just the, it's the devil's work. I, 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 I agree uh, to an extent, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come across as somebody who really likes ironing. I don't, but ironing is instrumental in my household. When we're, when we're divvying up the work, work tasks, let me just put it this way. Whoever's ironing gets to choose what's on the TV, on the big TV in the front room. So, you know, if, you, if there's something you really want to watch, then basically you volunteer to do the ironing and then everybody else either has to sit through what you want to watch or they have to go and find something else to do. So, I, you know, I'm a bit of a geek. I've been quite happily watching the ITV run through of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings series. I was ironing on Saturday night purely on the basis that I wanted to watch Lord of the Rings Two Towers because that happened to be on ITV uh, from eight o'clock, you know, through till kind of 11 o'clock. Ah, okay. So there you go. You see, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Ironing wouldn't be my first choice of one of the things that I'd need to do. However, what it did do is it got me some quality time on our relatively new um, TV that we've got on the wall. So ah, there you yeah, go. So yeah. What can I say? Instrumental. Now, sometimes you've just got to do things which you don't otherwise want to do because it actually has a benefit for you or for others down the line. And that's really the way in which I view ironing. Though, you know, if I could find a way of basically securing in my house where I am outnumbered, basically four to one, um, <laughs> if, 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 I, if I could, and that includes the cat who's also female, but um, if, if I could find a way of actually securing the TV without having to iron, then trust me, I'd do it. But this is the most effective way of doing it. So that's not necessarily something I'd outsource because it has, it's a means to an end. Yeah, see, that just doesn't still that still doesn't sway it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I've given it. No, a you you have. I mean, that was a very good attempt. <laughs> uh, someone else in the past has described it as quite mindful for them. You know, they 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 you know, they, they find it quite you know therapeutic in that way. Whereas cooking is that therapeutic thing for me. Uh, you know, I, I just get lost in cooking. You know, opening the fridge and saying, right, what have we got, and then creating something that tastes really good. Yeah. That yeah. Well, that look, I, I mean, really enjoy. Well, I'm pleased that you said that because unfortunately, and this is going to sound horribly traditional, but for me, you know, the extent of cooking for me is warming stuff up. However, you know, basically my wife and both of my kids actually find the creative aspects of cooking to be incredibly rewarding. Uh, they find it doubly rewarding because the deal is that if they're cooking, I'm the one cleaning the kitchen up afterwards. Ah, so, you know, okay. basically, yeah, everybody, everybody's happy. And I know that sounds horribly traditional that basically, you know, kind of, um, you know, I'm not the one who does cooking, but I, I'm not particularly good at it. You know, it's, I'm afraid to say I, I, I like cleaning the kitchen. I know that's a little bit sad, but it's a bit therapeutic. It's a bit therapeutic, and I view that as a as a price well worth paying for an absolutely fantastic meal with my family. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, cooking, yeah, everybody has their strengths. Unfortunately, that's not one of mine. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I know that. There's lots of, um, there's lots of sort of uh, atypical um, things that are not my strength at mm. all. I, I can't hang a shelf. Mm. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's just that anything to do with, you know, kind of working with my hands, I just find really, really tricky to do. Um, I was chatting with, uh, yeah. you know, uh, we've just moved house. Also, oh, regular podcast, since you've been pleased, and I've moved house. I'm now recording this podcast in my new home, which is amazingly exciting. Um, but okay. I was chatting with our new neighbour, and he said, oh, we need, there's a there's a fence that um, neither of us are sure whose fence it is, and the land registry can't help <laughs> us and anything, all that sort of stuff. So we've just come to an agreement that we'll, it needs replacing, and we'll just, we'll split the cost between us, and we'll just divvy it up, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll both agree what we're going to get instead, and so on and so on. Um, and I and I said, oh, so you know, when we get whoever we get in to do it, and he said, what do you mean, get someone in to do it? Can't we do it? I was like, no, no, I, I'm going nowhere <laughs> near that. You know, and he said, well, that's fine because I'm a I'm a joiner by trade and I do lots of different build. And I said, you know what, if you want to do that and if you're happy to to construct it, then you fill your boots. But that is just nowhere near my my strength in any way, shape, or form. I'm useless when it comes to anything like that. No, I mean, yeah, well, I, I, you know, being a farmer's son, I should say that I'm absolutely fantastic with my hands. You know, I can make any engine sing and I can and I can hang, you know, kind of doors and shelves and things like that. Unfortunately, whilst I can turn my hands to hanging shelves, my um, my father-in-law, who lives very close, is, is always the first one to arrive with toolbox and the demand for coffee in hand whenever we've got anything like that. And so I just let him get on with it, partly because, partly because you know, he's significantly better at it than me. Um, and partly because it's just, you know, it's, I, I get an easy life that way. So uh, where, where I'm going to get, this wasn't my intentional link, but oh. where I'm going to go with that, how I'm going to take that into, um, uh, into today then is, mm-hmm. um, so after I left that conversation with my new neighbour, um, my wife said to me, in jest, so did you walk away from that feeling really... Uh, weak and feeble then I don't know what did she say she didn't say weak and feeble what did she say Uh, feeling a bit girly that was it she said did you walk away from that feeling a bit girly and I was like no actually no Um, because that's what he's good at you know I know what I'm good at and and I'm okay with that but um, and I think because the relationship that my wife and I have she could get away with that Mm -hmm. Um, yeah but if that had been someone else that might be different so where I'm going with that for the listener is that we're talking today about banter about impoliteness and about power Um, and and I just thought that might be a nice way to take us from where we've been discussing so far then into the um, into the topic at hand for today yeah I mean, no, it's a nice one, especially considering you know, in similar situations, you know, my, um, you know, my wife said something similar to me as well, because I've got that kind of relationship with me. You know, she'll say things like, uh, you know, basically, are you, you know, you know, are you not feeling quite as manly as you otherwise could be, you know, could be because my dad's come across and fixed the door for you. you know, and she'll put it mm-hmm. like that and fix the yeah, door for, for you. you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for you, not not for the family, but for you. Uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm usually, you know, kind of like, no, I'm really comfortable with that. You know, basically, he's got his strengths, I've got mine. But it, it does, it does talk to these kind of um you know kind of society's notions of identity and gender identity mm. uh, and also your your notions of competencies both competency competencies both in society and when you get into workplace uh, environments competencies about you know what somebody's professional aspects are and then you've got all these kind of notions around identity which include um, the kind of more sociological factors as in age as well you know more sociological mm. factors beyond gender which includes age uh, which includes also notions of ethnicity levels of education mm. where you're actually from and we've got all of these kind of weird what called what what Roland Barthes called these kind of Bartesian myths or rather these stories of societies that we as members of a society or culture tell ourselves is actually normal. 
Um, and then if you're basically, you know, getting into any kind of interaction, then your sense of self, your sense of identity, this notion of this, this both social and um, academic notion of what's called face, mm-hmm. then becomes then becomes uh, a particular issue. And I'm and I'm sure that your your regular uh, podcast listeners have, have come across the concept of face when you talked to Don yeah. Archer uh, recently. So this notion of face is absolutely instrumental in notions of banter because when you're actually doing banter, which is broadly defined. Um, at least from an academic perspective, and I should point out just as an aside here that you know, kind of, academia doesn't try and force definitions on other people. It, it tries to it tries to take a descriptive view, as and tries to say this is this is what we feel that members of society are are meaning when they're using terms like mm-hmm. banter. Banter banter is often defined as um, you know things like insincere impoliteness, which it basically means is that I if I know you very well. I may actually venture an insult to you on the understanding that you, that you will recognise that it is insincere because we are such close friends, because our, our mutual identity construction is so close that I can risk offending you knowing full well that you will recognise it's me just simply poking, poking fun for fun's sake. Now, that's a, there's an inherent risk in that because if I'm relying on you more potentially than other forms of communication to recognize what I'm trying to do. If you don't take that the way in which I intended, and that notion of intention is very problematic, Indeed. of course, if you don't take that way, if you don't take that the way in which I've intended, that can cause either, you know, kind of damage to breakdowns of relations, or if it's in a workplace setting, a very uncomfortable and lengthy process with which you've got to talk um, through your explanations um, to uh, colleagues in HR. So, and that has happened in the past in, in various in various professional settings of which I am aware. Yeah. So this no- notion of banter, you know, when I put it like that, people may may think, "Well, why on earth would you ever want to get it? You put yourself at risk like that." Well, banter, in many ways, is actually essential. It's essential for it's essential for the construction and the maintenance of the construction of social groups. Mm-hmm. It's um, because it, it indicates when it's when it's communicated and accepted in a, uh, for what it is. It indicates that not only are we cooperators, but we are so close as cooperators that potential damage to our relationship, A, will not work, and B, will not actually negatively impact the collective way in which we work together. So there, is, there, are, there are huge positives for to have a healthy banter relationship, but there are also significant risks if you get it wrong, if it's overused, or if it's used where there is a disparity of uh, power relations, if there's an asymmetry, as it's mm-hmm. called, between power relations, or if there are sensitive sociological factors at work, um, either either external or internal to the communication. Uh, for example, you know, uh, if somebody was to say to me, you know, if I'd done something slightly wrong and somebody said to me, oh, you old fool, if I had suddenly then felt, or if I generally felt sensitive about my age and age isn't being a very real issue in workplaces in the UK, then ultimately uh, that could, that that attempt at banter, you know, saying something like, oh, you old fool, you know, that that's that's a fairly commonplace, fairly innocuous thing to say. But people may actually take that, you know, to take offence of that. And if you then, if you start moving into notions of, you know, ethnicity or gender or region of origin or level of education, you've got a real potential for for a, for a very messy outcome uh, where one was not intended. Absolutely, and and I think I, I can think of a number of examples from from my professional past where. Um, 
you know, there's been one one joke. Well, the 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 banter or the um, uh, the insincere impoliteness was um, around somebody being from Yorkshire and their their mm. propensity to spend money. Um, and mm. and as the budget holder, you know, the the I can't remember the exact phrasing, but essentially it was, oh, there we go, there's the Yorkshireman again. Um, mm. And and it was no, I'm not. No, this isn't about me and my background or where I'm from. This is about the fact that you're mm. being frivolous with money. And as the mm. budget holder, I'm saying no. That's you know yeah. that's that's I think that's an irresponsible way of of spending the cash. So this isn't about me being from Yorkshire and all the identity mm. that that brings with it. This is just about in this example mm. of what you're coming to me with a request for money for. I'm saying no because I don't think it's a worthwhile um, or it's a, it's a spend we don't need to make. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that that example beautifully, I think, ex- uh, that, that example beautifully exemplifies the differences between banter, which is insincere impoliteness, and actually veiled genuine impoliteness. And one of the things that we 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 need to be aware of is that there is currently no linguistic way of distinguishing between the two, and that's really, I think, why you get so many people constructing offence where it may not have been intended um, and, and then and then actually taking and then genuinely feeling I mean we're not talking about people who are overly precious here but we're, we are talking about people who you know basically because there's no real linguistic way of, dif- of, of differentiating between banter and you know basically impoliteness which is masked as banter mm-hmm. if you see yep. what I mean so something which which I want you to see it's banter but it's actually barbed behind it um, and there are many, many documented cases of that, and it, and, and it, it really depends on, you know, it's all down to context. It's down to which includes notions of personality and identity, and we need to be aware that when somebody says something like that, oh, there's the Yorkshire Yorkshireman coming out again, or there's a York, that's the Yorkshire and you coming out again. Um, there is, a, I've often theorised, and I need to do more research on this, that when you label something. You then there's a whole set of semantic meanings behind that label, which you then you know in a strange sort of way you then neatly package and then throw away. You see that in politics online nowadays. It's when somebody basically says, "Oh, if somebody if somebody defines somebody as a as a lefty mm-hmm. or a remoner, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, or, or the classic remoner around the whole Brexit debate and the ongoing kind of sensitivities around you know kind of the UK's leaving of the European Union. The moment somebody labels somebody else as a remoner uses a label what it does do is it seems to indicate i can dismiss everything you've said and that's you know that's that's a risk for labeling so when somebody uses a label in banter there's always an opportunity for somebody to say to to think oh you are simply just trying to encapsulate everything which is meaningful about what i'm trying to say and then dismiss it as being meaningless and so that's that that that's one of the fantastic from an academic perspective, but horrific from an actual workplace perspective. Um, you know, kind of uh, understandings around how banter and its close linguistic associates work, i.e., things like you know, kind of impoliteness, which is masked as banter. And that's you know, I, I find it utterly fascinating. I guess in the same way an immunologist finds you know you know kind of human lethal viruses utterly fascinating. It's not necessarily something you'd want to actually have to be inflicted on you but it's something from an academic perspective i find absolutely fascinating whilst understanding it can be um you know horrifically damaging hmm tell me more about labeling uh labeling um is a way of identifying is a way of dismissing 
you know basically the the points and the content of what people was actually saying and so if you're actually using things like oh you're a, there's the yorkshireman um, speaking mm-hmm. then that's that's potentially a way of dismissing uh, somebody's otherwise valuable contribution to an interaction mm-hmm. let me give you an example okay i i was explaining something to a team uh one of the sub teams within my own department and a colleague who happened to be a, a female colleague, um, a senior lecturer in uh, you know one part of you know one 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 kind of fifth of my department, as I was explaining a particular issue, um, it was a relatively minor issue which I wanted the team to address. This particular colleague uh, simply interrupted me, which itself is is, is particularly a challenging mm-hmm. thing to do, and then she said and she said, "Oh, are you mansplaining?" And I immediately wow. took offence at that. Now this, now now this colleague is known for her banter, and she said, "Is this you mansplaining to us?" And I immediately, you know, kind of felt a flash of 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 negative emotion at that. And in the end, I simply, relatively tightly said, "No, I'm boss splaining." Um, so that's how I dealt with it. Now I actually hate I hate the term mansplaining because that that use of that label robs an entire gender. In the same way that womansplaining, which is now I'm starting to see online coming, womansplaining or mansplaining, they rob entire genders of their right to contribute. And that's why I dislike them, because I find even though this particular colleague was attempting to use them, I realised very quickly in, in a banter, in, in a banter type way, it didn't work yeah, at that yeah. particular point in time. I mean, I didn't censure her at any particular point in time. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, kind of, you know, come down heavy on it. But it was that notion of that labelling, and so there's an issue to do with how you're using banter and how you're actually using banter where you may use a label like Ramona. Uh, and if somebody is described as a Ramona, as I mentioned earlier on, it, it's it's almost like an excuse to say I can now ignore everything that you're actually saying. Because I've labelled you as a Ramona and therefore what you're actually saying now has no value, even if it is a genuinely valid point. And so the use of labels in banter settings is particularly problematic. And, and I think, um, do I think, I, I wonder, because I, I agree with you whether, and the, sorry, lots of thoughts going on in my head. Let's take a, let's mm. take a breath. So I, I agree, I agree with you in that, um, what labels the, the, the a label that somebody used then um it makes it it, it robs that individual of their in, it, it robs that individual of their agency because it, it, it homogenizes yes. them into into a um into a, a group that it, that has certain characteristics in a in a in a yeah. um as as, as yeah real or perceived as viewed by whoever is is making that statement now what what exactly. i view what i perceive might be different to what the the labeler has uh, viewed or hmm. perceived um and and I think then the because you talked about context earlier on I, I you know I wang on mm. all the time about how important context is, um, mm. and and it also then brings in that that notion of the relationship between the individuals at play. You know, have I yeah. have have do I know in your example? I know I feel that flash of um, uh, you labelled it as negative emotion, whether it be you know anger or offence or whatever mm. it was, mm. um, at being you know being accused of mansplaining. Yet you manage mm-hmm. to catch that, cognitively reappraise it and go, no, I need to remember that this lady in particular is known for her banter. Yeah. So I will then yeah. issue a, my, my, you know, my response will be, no, I'm boss-splaining, not mansplaining. Um, yeah. And, and you, you, know, kind of you, you reframe the, the, the emotional response you, you had in that way. And I think yeah. the, if, you're, if individuals that are either doing the banter you know, or mm. receiving the banter um, are... Um, 
if they're not if they're unaware or they're they don't account for that contextual aspect that can make yeah. life really really tricky and that's where those yeah. misunderstandings and, and miscommunications can come from so i also want to take a few steps back because i think we, we did a really sure. good job of defining banter um, yeah. But within that, then we use some words that I don't think many people would be that familiar with. Um, and That's one of fine. those was impoliteness. So can we, and that might mean that we have to define politeness as well to therefore have impoliteness. Sure. I just wonder if it might be useful to, yeah. to to define what they are. Yeah, I mean, as, as with every academic term, these are hotly contested. Mm-hmm. And really, uh, as academia, as academics now basically operate and have done for a number of decades now, we, like, we prefer to take a descriptive approach rather than a prescriptive approach. That basically means, what we mean by that is we, we like to look at what society at large understands by certain concepts and certain terms. Having said that, if you actually ask 100 people in the UK, what does impoliteness mean? You are likely to get close to 100 separate definitions, not all of which will actually um, co-occur. So impoliteness has both an academic and a you know basic non-academic set of understandings, mm-hmm. and the technic- And so that's why we use this. We sometimes use the concept known as a technical term, and a technical term basically means this is what academics understand it as at this point in time, knowing full well that members of society at large w- may not fully recognise that definition. So there's my there's yeah. my rider. Yeah. If you yeah, see, that's fine. Yeah. So. Yeah, so impoliteness in a, a you know impoliteness as a technical term in an academic sense simply means that the use of um, linguistic terms and strategies, which if if effectively communicated, um, cause offence um, or have the risk of causing offence to uh, the recipients. Now. Um, Offence and you know politeness and impoliteness. These are known. These are considered to be mostly instrumental, if not entirely instrumental. Now, what instrumental actually means mm-hmm. is they they are used. They're a means to an end. Yes. Now, if you think about how we use politeness, we might like to think that we are polite for politeness's sake. We're not. We're polite because if I'm polite to you or you're polite to me you are more likely to do what I'm asking you to do or I'm more likely to do what you're asking me to do or you require of me or whatever, both immediately and longer term. So that's instrumental. The whole reason for being polite is it's a way of getting things done in society without us attempting to take big chunks out of each other. Um, because, again, our face and our notions of identity are constantly at risk. Yep. So how do, you, how do you mitigate? How do you reduce the impact? How do, you, how do you acknowledge that somebody else's individuality, somebody else's individual identity and their face are intact? You use politeness. Now, from time to time, I mean, if you've been out in Manchester on a Friday night, you will probably see that not everybody is as polite to one another as we might otherwise you know, like to think or, or would, would want to happen. Um, and, um, I mean, I'm not just picking on Manchester. That's basically yeah, yeah. every town yeah. and city in the UK. Yeah, every town and city in the UK. I mean, I'm, a, I'm originally from Kendall, and uh, I can tell you, going out on a Friday night in Kendall, when I used to do that, there were quite a few um, conflictive elocutions, I think is a technical term. I hear quite a few, uh, li- quite a few linguistic arguments, or what I would say is people basically have Having a, having a right old go at one another, you know, both physically as well as linguistically, i.e. they were being impolite. They were using linguistic terms, they were using language in order to attempt, purposefully attempt, to offend somebody else. That's what impoliteness means. And it tends to be viewed instrumental because when you start looking at things like army training discourse, yes, army training, dis, army training discourse, whilst 
society at large wouldn't necessarily say, hey, that's impoliteness, because they wouldn't recognise it as such. It comes under the technical term of impoliteness, i.e. it is linguistically aggressive um, behaviour, which is used instrumentally. Now, in British Army training and in American Army training, you will often find non-commissioned officers, um, i.e. sergeants and corporals, those who are training recruits, they will use um, aggressive language in no uncertain terms as a way of quickly encouraging the recruits to fit into the mould of the model soldier. Because if you do that and you get it right, those people will survive on a battlefield in high-stress situations. Now, that's an extreme form of instrumentality. But you can also see instrumental behaviour if you actually look at chef-to-chef interactions. And if you, you only actually have to look at any of the number of TV shows like, you know, Hell's Kitchen or, you know, basically... Or I remember from the late 1990s, a Channel 4 uh, programme called Boiling Point... Um, where you've actually got the head chef who's actually very, very aggressive towards um, the, 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 the rest of the chefing staff, the rest of the brigade, as it's called, within, uh, within the kitchen. Uh, it's done so because it's high stress, high stakes. They've got to move very, very quickly. They've got a reputation to uphold. And politeness takes time. Impoliteness you know, doesn't take quite as much time and it nevertheless pushes forward the force of what you mean very, very quickly. So whilst, so whilst politeness is a way of getting things done, sadly, impoliteness does seem to have more agency in getting things done. The downside is it, it, it gets things done more quicker, but at the cost of damaging personal and sometimes professional relationships. And, and I think that there's a... And, and this is where you can correct me if, if I if, if I'm missing misinterpreting or misrepresenting um, uh, anything now. So you have absolute okay. Um, you have absolute kind of agency to, to correct me. Um, so I think I'll, I'll try and do so politely. <laughs> so as as well as the as well as the aggression though, impoliteness yeah. can be done through lack of politeness markers. I think so. Yeah. In terms, of, so if you would expect yeah. someone to use a um, a formal title, so sir or madam or um, or yeah. doctor or professor, and then they they deliberately they leave that out when they call mm. somebody by their first name. So uh, it's a it's a maybe a slightly trivial example. But my my yeah. next door neighbour, who I was referring to earlier on, the the I talked about the male. Um, in the relationship, yeah. the female is the is a teacher, and she's the teacher at the mm-hmm. local primary school where all three mm-hmm. of my children up until recently have gone. So they're mm-hmm. struggling with calling her by her Christian name in the house, and yeah. her by. So they're going. Oh, so when they've been round, you know, we've only been in a week, two weeks, I think. Um, but when they, yesterday and the day before, they went round and they were still calling her by her. You know her teacher name, her you know sure. by Mrs. and then her surname, as opposed to yeah. her Christian name. So she was like, "Oh, no, just call me, just call me by my Christian name. It's absolutely fine. Just call me Ruth. It's fine." But they're they're, they're struggling yeah. with that because they know yeah. they've learned that the politeness rules are that when I see that yeah. lady, I do it. Now, if they were then in yeah, the precedent's been set. absolutely, and if they were yeah. then in school and yeah. accidentally called her Ruth, I'm sure she'd be fine yeah. about it. But if they were doing yeah. it then deliberately, that would be a form of um, of impoliteness. So rather than it, you know, yeah. so it's not aggressive in that way. But it, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it it, it can be. 
And again, the, the hearer, the, re- the receiver has to make a judgment call. And, you know, when you make a judgment call, you're not always necessarily correct. And that's something we need to be aware of when banter goes wrong. But ultimately, you've got to make a judgment call. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you make a judgment call, you could be incorrect. But you've got to make a judgment call as to whether or not that was intended or not. I mean, for example, um, OK, I'm going I'm, I'm to put you on the spot. Right. When, you, when, you introduced, when you introduced me on this, you, you, you said, you know, you're really excited to talk to uh, Mr. Bowsfield. It's technically Dr. Bowsfield. I wasn't going to mention it, but you brought the example up. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. mention it. But you know what? But you know what? You didn't know. So therefore, you know, basically that's that that's not even it's not a microaggression. So therefore, it's not like, a you know, what might be viewed as a micro a, a micro example of impoliteness. It's not even rudeness, i.e. You simply you're not giving me the attention or the respect that I'd otherwise want. You just simply didn't know. Uh, as simple as that. Let me give you another yeah, example. Yeah. About about 10, 12 years ago, I um uh, I was teaching a bunch of first years at the institution I was working at at the time. And it was at the end of the freshers week and I was giving them a session on the Friday. And I walked in and some of them were still calling me, you know, kind of Dr. Bowsfield and this. And even though we told them all week, just call us Derek, just call us by our first names because, you know, that causes a social distance between us and students. And some students find it very difficult, especially those that came f- um, through A-levels from school, coming to university, they assumed they'd actually have to call us by title and last name. And I said, no, just call us Derek. And then one of the students, I distinctly remember this, I remembered it for years and, you know, kind of gleefully told my children this you think it's hilarious and I came into the room and said hi you know basically for those of you who don't who don't know me you know you know I'm Derek and then one of the guys who'd heard me say all week oh yeah call me Derek call me Derek you know from the back he just shouted up and he said yeah this is this is bearing in mind this is a first year who'd only just started mm. he then said yeah this is Derek he said but you, you he said you guys get to call him DK now everybody then started laughing I've never been called DK in my life right and everybody started laughing and I turned around and basically said well I said I said uh I said, a number of people call me a number of different things. I said, but you guys do not get to call me DK. I said, you get to call me Derek. Simple as that. And then we just dealt with the situation that way. But it always struck with me that this one student felt so comfortable. Mm. He decided he would throw that one in. Now, he was attempting to use banter. I interpreted that as not, not an attempt to offend, but as, an, but as an attempt to basically do banter, which failed. So ultimately, in hindsight, I would say it's probably a little bit rude. Um, and, you know, and he never called me DK again throughout you know, his, entire, his entirety of his career. And he was, you know, he ended up, he's a good student, you know, he, he got a good degree at the end of it. Um, but the fact is, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like everything else. He tried, he tested the boundaries, you know, I basically quietly put him back in his, in, in his box, if you want to put it that way. And ultimately everything, everything was good. So he attempted to use banter. It didn't quite work on me. I corrected, you know, I corrected this. And we've even had discussions, you know, basically with students when we're teaching, you know, kind of first year social linguistics, i.e. how society and language come together. You know, I, I, I say to students, you know, just introducing them to this notion of social linguistics. So think about how you talk to or how you address, you know, basically, you know, your mum and dad, your friends, even me. Um, and then we talk about notions of address. For example, uh, my nickname amongst my friends uh, and my family is Des. Nobody outside of my friend group or my uh, family calls me, you know, you know, calls me Des. Everybody, you know, everybody in my family and friend, friends group calls me Des. Nobody outside of that calls me Des. Now, I've mentioned, I've mentioned this to students mm. and then I've basically said, you will actually have your own nicknames, which sound absolutely perfectly fine 
from you know family and friends group but if i use the nickname to you you'd be horrified i said in the same way that none of you in this room get to call me des ever and that normally goes down really well you know they kind of you know they, they kind of have lots of smiles and those that get it never use it and those that don't try and use it once and then i'll have a chat with them about it but you know it's 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 just a way of basically getting <laughs> these things across and this indicates something which you mentioned earlier on phil which is you know basically it's it's not so much what you say it's who you're saying it to and what that relationship is like that is hugely instrumental in the interpretation uh, by any individual of what is meant to be banter and what is not taking as taken as banter. And I think in the workplace as well, we have we have to account for yeah. um, overhearers you know, who are, who aren't necessarily the oh, yeah. the intended recipient of the banter. So it might you know, and I've had cases you know within my HR experience, I've had cases where you have two individuals who have who have a a relationship that they feel between them allows them to use particular yeah. language or terminology or mm. or terms of address or what they describe mm. as terms of endearment. Um, but then when you factor in mm. overhearers, whether they be peers in the team or members of the public, in one example. Um, or, or others that their interpretation of that thing can be massively different to what um, to what those interlocutors may have, uh, what those speakers I should say probably um, are, are yeah. trying to do between them. Yeah, because the instrumentality of that is we we're, we're using these terms or we're using these address address terms or we're using this phrase or these phrases because we know between us yeah. we can say that and it's okay. But then you, when you were then bringing an overhearer, and I've had it in one example was within a team. So where somebody new joined the team, it was this was this banter happened in a team meeting, and mm. they were mortally offended by the fact that people in a professional yep. context would use the, the the language that was being used in the way that it was being used. But it had been it had been precedent in that team for a long yeah. time. So everybody was like, "Well, what's the issue? Yeah. We've been doing it." No, like I mean, this it, yeah. I mean, I've got I've got example after example after example, which I could tell you of that happening. And of course, one thing you've got to guard against. I mean, the thing is, fundamentally, banter is healthy. However, you've also got to guard against the fact that banter represents a particular cultural way of doing things. Now, when you've got new members of the team coming in, to expect them to simply knuckle down and accept and actually join in with that cultural aspect can actually be quite problematic. And that's something that new teams should really be gently asked to, to be to be to be to be away. If you've got a constant way of um, you know, talking to one another, which outside of that group and outside of the long-term practice may actually be interpreted differently, I think you need to be mindful of that and need to be very cool of that with others. Um, I mean, I can give you example after example of situations like that where the people overhearing it or people who have joined a group um, have actually seen something and they've been horrified about uh, I can give you example after example of that I mean I, I'll give you one example where this happened to a, yeah, this happened to a colleague of mine another a colleague of mine um, you know who was in his late 30s at another institution and he had a habit of uh, being on uh, Facebook and his policy was he never he never invited anybody, but he never refused anybody on Facebook. And because he was actually a very popular colleague uh, amongst students at, at the institution he was working at at the time, uh, lots of students would actually invite him on Facebook and he would accept them. Mm. Uh, in hindsight, in hindsight, given that his own experiences with HR about what I'm about to tell you, um, he, he subsequently is basically you know, um, uh, more circumspect. He's still on Facebook, uh, but he does not actually accept new students You know, when they try and invite him up. So he just kind of leaves them there so they can't 
can't re-invite him mm. and things like that. But in this situation, it was admittedly late at night. One of his students, who he knew very well, who'd actually done, you know, who was an inspired student by all accounts, who'd done an awful lot of research and had worked with this particular colleague uh, at another institution throughout her first year, second year, and her third year. Bearing in mind this, this, this colleague, uh, this colleague was Merlin in his late thirties, and the student who was actually posting on Facebook, um, she said. Uh, you know, she was basically 21, uh, 22, and she said, eek, only three more, something along the lines of, I seem to remember this, because uh, I was called in as a as an expert by this institution's HR to, to talk about this. Right, okay. Um, she, she, she then said, eek, um, she said, only three more weeks uh, of my of my degree course, you know, slightly worried, uh, don't know what else, you know, don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Now, this particular colleague who'd, who'd been teaching her for three years, he then, he then listed, because it's just the way in which he does things, it's just, he's incredibly bombastic. He listed 20 things in there that she could do and then summarised with his sting in the tail, which was, oh, you could stay with us to pursue a master's. The problem was, one of the early things he'd actually suggested that she could do with her degree was pole dancer. Now, right, okay. It wasn't. It wasn't the student. Bearing in mind this is Facebook and it's a very public environment. It wasn't the student herself who'd received that that took offence at that. It was a friend of hers that didn't know this colleague and had never had him as a as a as a as a tutor. She had. Uh, she had taken her understanding of what a student tutor relationship should, should be like, like yeah, and, yeah. And, and found his comment of. You know, pole dance. He'd also put in things like lion tamer, you know, safari expedition leader, things that were equally beyond the bizarre, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, things like, you know, kind of, you know, jet fighter, test pilot. You know, he'd done, a, he'd done about a series of about 19 or 20 of these ridiculous things. And then he, he summarised with this, oh, he could stay with us to do a master's. And that was his, his particular point, And that was his, his, his particular defence. But the point was, a third party had taken offence on behalf of the student to whom that comment was directed because she did not know the the culture that was obtaining between this particular colleague and his particular students. Um, and the student in question, the one to whom the pole dancing comment had been directed, had said, I was not offended in any way, shape or form. This is just what, and then this particular colleague's name is like. He's just like that. And it basically, you know, it's it, it's simply not offensive. It's just who he is. Mm. So, I mean, mm. that, that, and the other, and the, just coming back to kind of link on this one and other things, um, you may have seen that my Twitter handle is Dr. Wordy Boy. Now, one of the reasons it's Dr. Wordy Boy is that um, my friends, my family don't do this, but my friends who I've grown up with, people I've been, you know, I went to primary school with and, and I'm still in contact with and meet, you know, basically once every week, once every two weeks for a catch up, uh, they will refer to me as Wordy Boy. Simple as that. Okay. And I'm I'm not offended, but they actually they use this as a label. Thinking back to what I said earlier on about labels, yes, they use this as a label, um, and they use this to basically because I'm I'm the only one of my friends group, not the only one who's been to university, but the only one of the friends group that's actually gone all the way through university and got a PhD and you know this that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know my you know my friends are now running. You know one's running his own build, building firm, another one's running his own electrical business, another one's basically you know selling. Um, you know, kind of, you know, he, he's 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 a co partner in his own um, um, independent financial advice business. Another one's basically running a, a, you know, kind of running distribution for a major northwest, you know, kind of organisation, a, a food, you know, food distribution organisation. Mm-hmm. So you know, 
they, these are these are all you know kind of friends who in their own fields that you know they they've by their own definition made a success of themselves. But they signal to me, interestingly enough, they signal to me that um, you know my particular experiences and expertises, you know, basically in their view are no more or less valuable. Um, than their own be, uh, by every time they come up with something and I say well actually from a definitional point of view or if I say anything that's, that's vaguely linguistically go oh, here we go he's, he is a wordy boy or they will turn to me and say what a they say come on wordy boy we're paying your wages what does this mean mm-hmm. or something along these lines um, and occasionally people who aren't within that kind of the, the, the centre of that kind of that, that group where you've got more peripheral members will actually get quite offended by, um, you know, and in the past they have done, they've got quite offended hearing this and thinking, you know, they shouldn't be talking to you like that. And it's like, well, you know, okay, so there's society says academics should be viewed in this way. But, you know, I've grown up with these people. I've actually seen them, you know, sit, sitting on the floor with a grazed knee crying at age five, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, there's a history there that you, that you dismiss, you know, at your peril. And, you know, for me and my friends group, given that we are basically very close-knit friends group and have been for more decades than I care to remember in some ways you know I think that probably has more weight amongst the the, the group of us that doesn't mean to say that we don't fall out we occasionally do mm. um you know you know other things that we've actually said but significantly less as time goes on yeah but I guess there's also an instrumental aspect as well to it though isn't it in the, it, it, as well as um as well as I guess elements of banter slash you know yeah. faux mocking there's also some yeah. there's also some endearment within that you know because there is yeah, there's a huge amount of endearment. They wouldn't, they 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 call me wordy boy. I mean, I call the one who runs his own he's on the electrical business Sparky. You know, and it's you know it's simple as that. Um, you know, and uh, you know, and we'll occasionally basically round on another of another of uh, my colleagues, who's the one who sells. You know, he's independent financial advice. You know, we'll we'll occasionally round on him and say, well, you know, at least we're doing something productive. You sell fear. You know, you sell fear of the future. You sell, you know, fear of getting old and things like that. And and you know, we'll have those kind of you know kind of comments but yeah there is there is there is always a, a, a sense of endearment but there's a game like quality to it as well at least within my within my friends group you know there's, there's a term of endearment as in i can say these things to you because we have been friends yeah. for more than you know for more than 40 years in, in some cases um you know because we've been friends for more than 40 years we know how we you know we each take and we know what presses buttons and how far we can press them but also there's a, there's a, you know and this could actually be gender specific identity construction you know doing laddishness mm-hmm. even now we're actually even though now we're actually in our mid to late 40s if you see what i mean yeah. we're still doing lad we're doing laddishness there's a game like quality to it it's 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 when we're engaging in banter how good can the banter be before it you know how how near the knuckle can it be before it actually gets you know how close can you get it before it actually tips over into something serious yeah there's a real game-like quality with that. How far can you push it? That kind of thing. Though there are obviously a few things that are off-topic. Um, these things being basically nobody in my friends group, and as far as I can see in the research that I've actually, the data that I've seen, nobody in anybody else's ever says anything negative about the children of everybody else. You know, you just don't do it. That's There are some things which are totally which is, off-topic. Yeah, t- yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So it's basically, it's, it's uh, children, parents... Uh, you know, kind of deceased friends or family members. None of these things are ever, ever basically p- 
pushed. However, I, you know, basically, if you've got colleagues, you know, if you've got friends, I should say, who've got who've got itinerant girlfriends or things like that, they're not off topic. Yeah, if you've yeah. got people who are, if you've got people who are friends of friends, they're not off topic. If you've got things where people have tried to do something and been either successful or unsuccessful, they're not off topic. So there are some things which can be very, very close and near the knuckle. Uh, there are other things which, you know, the, the, it's almost like self-regulation in terms of banter. There are things which you just do not mention. Mm. And even if they, if they were mentioned in a banter-like setting, the group quickly shuts those kind of things down. Yeah. I'm trying to think now if there's any other, would, would, in my experience, are there any other um, kind of taboo or, or, or unallied topics? Well, I'll, I'll save that one for, for later, I think. Sure. So I, I want to do a bit of a summary. In, um, not, I don't want to put it together yet because I also want to talk about power because we haven't talked about power yet. But I, sure. I guess I, I think it might be useful just to, to bring together where we're at then. So, so we talked about how banter is, um, give me your... Um, your description again. So banter is? Oh, well, banter is insincere impoliteness. Wonderful. And, and, yeah. and, it, and it is intended and interpreted in that way. When it's successful, when it's, it's successful. intended and interpreted in that way, yes. And, and banter is a healthy thing because it, um, it signals closeness in relationships it signals um, understanding of, uh, of other people within yeah. that context. Yeah. Yeah, and it signals the, it signals the strength of the relationship as well, as well as there's a huge endearment affection uh, element to it as well. Mm-hmm. The prob the problem is, like anything else, it can be it can misfire, and if it misfires, then everything you're attempting to achieve, which includes re reaffirming, re-strengthening the social bonds, showing endearment, you could actually have if you're unlucky and if you've mishandled it, the complete opposite effect. Okay. So that then brings us back into the impoliteness bit then. So that's yeah. where things are done to either aggravate or offend or threaten or um, uh, be, be aggressive towards or, or something in, in that way and yeah. using uh, most commonly linguistic. I, I wonder if there's some paralinguistic as well, but we'll come back to that later. There's definitely paralinguistic, um, yeah. So be using linguistic or paralinguistic um, strategies to do that. On the, on the contrasting side of that, then there's politeness where... Um, we are doing either you're linguistic using, or paralinguistic things to yeah. um, to grease the wheels, I call it. So they're, they're things yeah. that, that grease the wheels of conversation or grease the wheels of um, of actions and, and future kind of working and, uh, and relationships. Um, yeah. And both both politeness and impoliteness then um, can happen um, within interaction with other people. And then yeah. and then banter is the um, is the uh, insincere aspects of uh, of impoliteness yeah so what if we then added you know as much as venn diagrams are you know are often overused if i then added yeah. a third aspect to that so if i if one of my circles in my venn diagram is is um uh, impoliteness another one of those then is banter because you can do impoliteness yeah. and uh, and be doing banter and you can do impoliteness and not be doing banter if we then bring power into it as well then how, yeah. how does how does or um, what does the research tell us about how power kind of interplays or overlaps with those other two aspects? Uh, it interplays and overlaps very very carefully. Um, the reason being is that the power asymmetry, because the the theory and the practice seems and the data seems to suggest that people who are more powerful within hierarchies, organisations, and structures don't have to use as much politeness, all of the things being equal, than those who are more powerless. 
Okay. That then sets up a series of expectations so that if a more powerful person is attempting to use banter with somebody who's more powerless, that can actually therefore be assumed or it can sometimes be interpreted or is more readily interpreted um, as actually being sincere rather than insincere. And so therefore banter from basically somebody who's a, who's you know in a in a senior boss type position coming down the structure is is much more high risk mm-hmm. um and so I, that doesn't stop people who are slightly lower than basically the person who is who is a kind of in in a managerial position from using banter or attempting to use fairly light or significantly more innocuous banter towards that particular colleague but again that can sometimes be interpreted as a challenge to authority and a challenge to position so the 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 summary of the particular situation on the understanding that significantly more research is actually needed is Mm -hmm. that where power is becomes more of a differential then um, banter is used very carefully and so is is banter used so if if i can I guess I want to play with a with a contrast of that. Mm-hmm. Then. So can sure. banter be used by those without power, without hierarchical yeah. power in that way? So if they if they if you've yeah. got, you know, you you mentioned you've got a, a team which is made up, I think, of five different areas. So if I just imagine yeah. that that's five different people, yeah. Um, yeah. if somebody within your team then was to was attempting to use banter as a way of um, exercising or demonstrating power, yeah. Is that, is that a thing? Yeah, it is. And that's, yeah, it's definitely a thing. Banter, in many ways, it may be that banter is rarely ever used just for the purposes of strengthening the social bonds, showing that we are cooperators and that very little will actually challenge us. It comes back to this notion I mentioned earlier on about the game-like quality. Um, in a game, if you think about a traditional game, there's, there is usually one winner yeah. or one set of winners. So the moment you start, the moment banter starts to overlap with game-like qualities, then there is a sense that power is therefore up for contestation, and banter could be one of the mechanisms by which somebody gains either local or long-term, either short-term or long-term. Uh, notions of power and influence so banter like any other linguistic tool is a tool for instrumentality i.e. getting things done Mm -hmm. and if and if you're the person who's controlling getting things done then you are de facto the person in power yes because and and that's the so i i have um and, and I, I don't think I disagree. I don't think you and I will disagree. Mm. We haven't talked about this, but I don't think we'll disagree. And no. So, so I think power is, is something that is much more dynamic than I think is often given credit for. So I think there's Hugely. a there's a the, the general narrative is that if you're in a you know if you're in a, if you're higher in the if you're in a hierarchy and you are above yeah. other people, therefore you have the power. And and sure. I don't buy that necessarily. No, um, I think that, simply... that is that does happen, but I think it's much much it more dynamic than that. And, and power is something that moves and changes from yeah. sometimes from utterance to utterance, but also it can be yeah. from topic to topic or, or context to context. Perfect. Um, Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about that, I mean, the, oh, this is a whole other podcast, and, and probably with somebody who's done more work on language and power than, than myself, I've done a little bit. Um, yes, uh, there is often a, a view in society that um, power is is hierarchical and it's concrete in institutions, and that's simply not true. We we use the concept now um, 
I don't think any of your podcast listeners would actually you know not recognize the fact that people can be what's called upwardly managed mm-hmm. i don't mind being i don't mind being upwardly managed on the basis that i've got colleagues here who are teaching german french spanish italian japanese mandarin you know as well as linguistics tesol digital media and communications multimedia journalism i'm not a journalist i don't speak german i need to be upwardly managed because they have more power in their particular fields of expertise than I do. Mm. So that I require them to be more powerful and more knowledgeable in the areas of German, Spanish, Italian journalism because you know I've got to manage these particular teams. I've got to lead these teams. Um, but they actually have more expert power in those particular areas. I've just got to balance their demands, their needs from an expert power perspective with the basically the, the university's um, own uh, allocation of resources in order to ensure that everybody gets the best out of this and that we're, you know, we're not basically running the programme at, uh, at a financial you know, or any other loss. Students get the very best experience that we can actually provide them, um, and that resources are appropriate to the task at hand. And so, and that absolutely relies on people having different types of power and bringing them together in a meaningful way. So, I absolutely agree with you that you know we, we need to move away from this overly simplistic view of power as being top down hierarchical. It is diffuse, and I agree with you entirely. And the research would agree with you, Phil, that power changes from utterance to utterance, from minute to minute from topic to topic hmm. and, and, and i guess with that then is um and, and this i think comes back to the, the my, my my very eloquent question of is that a thing hmm. question that i made a few minutes ago which is that i, I then think ben i I've, i have experienced then banter as a as an instrument that somebody is using to get some or, or to assert some power of some description in some way um <clears throat> and where I both, uh, I, there's two other aspects I want to link into that. So one is whether it's effective, you know. So is it is it perceived as, um, you know, is it perceived as banter, as insincere and politeness, or it, have they left themselves what I call wriggle room, and and that's yeah. where I, I think linguistically, I see a lot of um, a lot of banter trying to play in that mm. wriggle room way where you're Absolutely. not really sure. Is that, is that banter or is that an insult or is that, or mm. what you and I might call impoliteness? Um, yeah. But what it does is it gives the speaker enough wriggle room to say, oh, no, 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 just, no that was just bants. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I suspect there's a huge amount of that. I mean, wherever you get indirectness in language use, then people are attempting in one way or another, whether or not they fully realise it or not, they will be conscious at some point that they're giving themselves what what's called plausible deniability, you know, i.e. that they are saying that, oh, I was only intending it as such and such, not how you've taken it. And if you've taken it that way, then basically that was not intended and that's really now becomes more of your problem. Mm. And I suspect that's, I suspect that's a common defence, especially in workplace settings where You've got instances of interactions gone wrong or genuine instances of banter gone wrong or instances where somebody's attempted to get a bit near the knuckle with somebody and it's not been quite pitched rightly. And rather than them gaining instrumentality of power over the other person by using what appears to be a contender for banter, uh, it's actually basically been responded to in a more negative way. I think, you know, ultimately there's a lot of that that can go on. And so, you know, if anybody was actually hoping for a really clear response to basically what is and is not banter i'm afraid you know we're not there yet if we're ever going to be there 
Yeah, and I think your ending, if we're ever going to be there, is a is an accurate one because you, you're never going to know because I I might you know I can say oh that wasn't my intention where actually it was my intention but I don't want to own, yeah. I don't want to own that because if I own that that then opens up yeah. a you know a whole other type of conversation or a whole other aspect of it because yeah. yes I did want to you know yes I did want to communicate my displeasure or my mm. um, my mm. frustration or my um, or my sarcasm or whatever it was um, and I often hear in in people talking about oh there's intent versus impact and you know so the, yes. what did you intend and then what was what was the actual impact that it had and I'm, well I can tell you what my intent was but it doesn't mean that that was actually what my intent is and I remember there's there was mm. one case in particular where when I was I was running the investigation and it was about a, a number of misunderstandings and if you yeah. aggregated up the number of those misunderstandings and some of the similarities of those misunderstandings actually that 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 led to a to at least sketch out a picture where it was hard for the individuals to say that wasn't my intention so they yeah. they arguably they could have got away with it once but with the with a number of of occurrences that we yeah. had actually yeah. Um, it was harder for them to maintain that line. You know, this is where we then go yeah. back into the face aspects of things. It was harder for yeah. them to maintain the, the, the a line of unintentionality when actually when yeah. you look at these these different examples over time, that would suggest yeah. that there's some intentionality there. Yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, I think you're on, that I would actually agree with in principle. And, and one thing I think we need to remember is that words whether written or uttered once written or uttered no longer be no longer belong to the speaker or the writer mm. it's as simple as that yeah. i mean if you think about it when you speak or when you write and press send on an email you are giving those words to somebody else so they 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 therefore take at least partial ownership of those and given that language is imperfect all naturally occurring languages are wonderfully beautifully horribly imperfect in terms of communicating our full intent and our full meaning um then ultimately you need to be aware that words no longer belong to the producer of those words they they belong as equally to the receiver of those words so we need to guard against these you know kind of ancient linguistic theories of you know the producer you know, owns these words and it's what they intended. Mm. We also equally need to guard against what have been postmodern theories in linguistics about, oh, it's what the hearer does with them that counts, because that completely then backgrounds the speaker. Yes. This is essentially what? This is essentially a, a this is essentially a 50-50 or more or less 50-50 split between both the producer and the receiver or the speaker and the hearer, if you want to put them in more simple terms. Uh, I mean, I remember kind of Voloshinov or Bakhtin saying, my word is a bridge between myself and another. If we want to understand that quotation to its to its full understanding, then ultimately it's literally, you know, basically whilst my word is actually a means of communication, it rests equally as strongly on both both banks of that river, if you see what I mean, yeah. both banks of the river of communication. And so ultimately, you know, I think we probably need to accept that the you know a speaker may or may not claim that's that's not what i intended the intention is one thing it's the uptake and the effect on the the receiver and the relationships now between speaker and hearer that's also as equally important i think yeah <clears throat> and that's where you get into things like backhanded compliments you know as, as yeah. a, you know so what you know what what's the is is the yeah. you know what what and, and the, i you know, it gets really interesting um 
you, you'll know because you know it was part of the a special edition of the journal that you put out. But the, mm. the uh, ways that individuals can give compliments, uh, I mm. guess, we're moving slightly away from banter in, in that way because they mm. weren't they weren't doing it in a bantery in, in a in a bantery way. But but the no. you know giving a compliment by disparaging someone else is a, you know. A, a, you know, yeah. there's a, endless examples of, of ways that we that we linguistically try and do things and I guess that's back to the, the yeah. imperfection that you were talking about earlier on yeah no, and again I, I distinctly remember that uh, when I was doing when I was a master's student I did a uh, particular assessment which I found incredibly challenging um, on some advanced form of syntax and when I handed it in it came back and it came back with a distinction level mark which I was really chuffed about because it was probably uh, the most challenging piece of work I'd ever I've ever done in my academic career and syntax and grammar are not things in terms of my linguistic expertise that I do but I remember the the tutor who'd actually said she said she actually said words to the effect of um considering your strengths as a linguist comma I find this to be an excellent piece of work. So I thought, great. Now, thanks so much for that opening clause there. You needn't have done that. But as, as a way of basically giving me a backhanded compliment, yeah. for, she recognised that that was not my area of strength. Mm. And so therefore, and so I had chosen to say, given that you're not actually a syntactician, you know, given your field of linguistics, you've actually done an excellent piece of work. She could have just said, "You've done an excellent piece of work," yeah. and that would, you know, I'd have been happy with that. But she felt, because she was that kind of person, she felt that um, you know she needed to put that in there. And you know, it may or may not have been a backhanded compliment. I certainly anticipated. It. I certainly took it as a, as if it was. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So mm. um, we, we've covered uh, we've covered a lot of ground then over the course of our conversation so far. Um, yeah. If if our listeners wanted to find out more, are there any mm-hmm. um, books or publications or um, authors or videos or you know, what resources? That's a better that's a better question for yeah. you, Phil. What better what resources question, yeah. would you suggest um, for people to um, you know, if they wanted to know more about some of the areas that we talked about today? Okay, I mean, there have been one or two attempts by uh, various colleagues, both within academia and outside of academia, to start talking about notions of politeness and, you know, impoliteness and things like that. My suggestions would be to currently stick with the academic work. So Jonathan Culpepper in 2011 did an absolutely fantastic uh, barnstorming piece of work on impoliteness. Um, You'll notice... You know, Phil, what I'm attempting to do is not, you know, come across as immodest by kind of promoting yeah, my yeah, own stuff. That's all right. uh, but uh, yeah, so I mean, Jonathan Culpepper's 2011 work is actually really, really good. If if people really want to basically plough through my own 2008 uh, monograph on impoliteness, then that's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Claire Hardacre, who's actually starting to do work, uh, has been doing work for the last few years, but will shortly have her own monograph for academic work and her non-academic work on trolling online. Uh, and there's one or two things that are actually coming out. Uh, basically outside of academia um, where Claire's actually talking about trolling and online aggression that's yeah, really she, good way she's of starting my, she's on my podcast guest list at the moment good yes I haven't, no, I haven't, she I haven't will, secured her yet she's on my, my wish list of um, oh no, she'll to, be to get. She'll be she'll be great. Uh, the one thing I would say is and is that there are one or two pieces of work out there. I'm going to be very careful what I say, but I am I am the owner of a copy of. Um, uh, work by Lynn Truss, who is a journalist on uh, politeness in British society. Okay. I'm afraid to say, whilst I found it an entertaining read, it was there's evidence that she's misunderstood the models and the theories about uh, notions of positive and negative politeness. Okay. And therefore, that 
that suggests that her work could probably do with a second edition. I'll put it that way. Okay. If I'm, I'm trying to be as polite as possible, because I otherwise, you know, kind of, you know, I otherwise found it an entertaining read. If a little too, um, how can I put this? Not rooted in what uh, academic research has actually found people in society are actually using okay. in terms of notions of politeness. So be aware of that. Okay. That's not to say that I didn't find, didn't like it. He says trying to cover his back very carefully. <laughs> and so, no, so this, I didn't like uh, it. But, was that yeah. misinterpretation of Brian Levinson type? Um, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, she 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 misunderstood the concepts as you might do on notions of positive politeness and negative politeness. Yeah. She'd misunderstood what those concepts actually meant because, of course, we've got in our head a schema of what that positive means good and negative. Good it's bad, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and rather than rather than basically, you know, how Brandon Levinson used the terms, yeah, so, which is about, and, and she, she, positive being yeah. about you know, reinforcement and acceptance, and yeah, your negative. desire for approval, yeah, yeah. about your freedom, freedom of imposition, exactly. So she she misunderstood those and, and she misrepresented them. Other than that, it was a, a particularly interesting read, if a little too, mm-hmm. you know, un, you know, non secured in the academic research. Okay, all right. Um... And then, of course, you can always get uh, get hold of a copy of the Journal of Politeness Research, Volume Fourteen, Issue Two, which is on uh, politeness and impoliteness in professional contexts. Indeed, and, and I think there's a uh, yes. there's a number of different papers that are in that particular special edition. Oh, and some fantastic <laughs> ones in there as well. Absolutely, not not I'm not including my own, of course. No, no not not me. I, no, no, <laughs> no, but but the the beauty of that is that this is it's almost like ac- academic work is actually coming full circle. So it's no longer just just drawing from what's actually going on in 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 society um, and 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 formalizing and recognizing what's going on. It's now basically trying to. It's almost like it's trying to identify good practice in certain areas. Yeah. Put it on a firm academic footing, and then su- and then suggest, look, there are there are these settings which have effectively used notions of politeness, or have dealt effectively dealt with impoliteness in these particular types of settings, and then and then here it is. If this is something that you want to adopt into your own policies, or you want to adopt into your own, or, you know, kind of working practices, or adopt into your own training mechanisms, this is what's worked elsewhere. So I think that's really the value of this particular special edition, and that's really what we were intending with it. Yeah. I, I I managed to get hold of three of the different papers from that special edition and I agree there yeah. is some really interesting work happening um, mm. in terms of you know, how can we not just report on, on what's happening but also progress that and take that further on to say yeah. okay well now rather than just report what's happening how can that be used and how can that help and, and support yeah, and, exactly. and enable communication and understanding within within the workplace so that's good really yeah. um, uh, are there any misconceptions that you'd like to clear up that you haven't cleared up already Wow, uh, I don't know. Is there anything I've said, or is there anything from which I've represented in the uh, in in the theory and the practice from an academic perspective, potentially not as clear as it could be for your regular podcast listeners? Um, not that I can think of. I guess are there any kind of? I suppose what I was more thinking, rather than um, thinking about your contributions within the discussion we've had today, I was more thinking about general, you know, are there general myths out there in the big wide world? Yeah. So we talked about yeah. one, for example, like power as an example. That was one that, yeah. we've, that we talked about. Are there any other yeah. any other myths or misrepresentations that you think would be useful to, to address? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the whole point of discussing banter, I guess, is that notions of, 
you know, things which appear to be offensive language are not always bad. But by the same token, things which appear to be positive language, which you would actually identify in the notions of, you know, kind of social notions of positive, I should say, in the notions as you'd identify in the notions of politeness, doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Mm. There are many there are many cases in which people can be can use politeness um, to signal uh, very clearly or to subtly suggest anything other than a polite attitude towards somebody else and there are many many documented cases of this both you know kind of not only in kind of fictional drama but in real life where mm. you know people people are you know kind of potentially uh, what we might actually call overly polite and it's obvious yeah um to others that uh they are being um challenging to obsequious by the use of you know or otherwise aggressive by the use of over politeness mm. Um, and you know there are many cases of that and the interesting thing about that is who's ever going to complain about somebody being overly polite to them yeah absolutely and and it, you know I've had it in the past where where the um, you know, requests for um, assistance or requests for, for work to be completed are responded with you know things similar to yes sir of course, uh, yeah. three bags full, sir, yeah. type thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but said I mean, with, with, you know, in a way that implies assent, but actually with yeah. an undertone of dissent behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've occasionally received them myself. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the favourites from one of my actually more senior members of staff is that if I ask him to do something which I suspect may not necessarily be as popular with him and his team as they might actually like, uh, he has a particular habit of saying, "Well, you're the boss." <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and it's—I've uh, never actually tackled him about whether or not he's being sincere because it's—and this might actually be of interest as well. I suspect he is—you know—there's there's a level of you know kind of permissible permissible insubordination behind that phrase. Mm. But you know what? You know what? His team usually then gets the heads down on the rare occasions I have to ask them to do things that they otherwise might not want to do. They get the heads down, they do it, they do it effectively, and everybody benefits. So why would I want to rock the boat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good example. I like that. <clears throat> okay. Um, are there beyond Claire? Thanks. We talked about Claire already. Are there any other mm. any anybody else that you think would be a good guest to track down to get on the podcast? Absolutely. I think if you're interested in notions of um, you know, kind of politeness and impoliteness from, you know, kind of a, a, an additional perspective, then I would suggest Professor Jonathan Culpepper I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Claire Hardacre, absolutely for trolling uh, online and the use of and the, you know, and combating against trolling online, up to and including, you know, basically how trolling is actually dealt with in various social media sites, uh, as well as the kind of the real world impacts. I think you definitely, Claire. If you're interested in looking at uh, cross-cultural uh, notions of politeness, mm-hmm. then Gillianne, Gillianne House or Gudrun Held would be really good in those particular perspectives. Um, would, you, would you be able yeah. to um, either, either either message me or... I want to make sure I, I, I get spellings correct, if that's okay. No, it's not, no problem. I can, I can send you contact details. That's absolutely fine. Lovely, thank you. Um, and, yeah, and there's, there's, any number of, there's any number of colleagues that... Uh, you could find for any any number of areas. I mean, if you're interested in in uh, uh, if you're interested in looking at uh, notions of uh, language, politeness, identity uh, in interaction, then uh, you know Pilar Garces Conayes would be really good. Again, I can send you details. Please. Um, yeah, and uh, you know notions of uh, you know basically well. You know, 
I would find it interesting, I'm not sure your podcasters would, but notions of how you do politeness in what's known as uh, Maori and Pakiha relationships. That's Maori in New Zealand, and Pakiha is a Maori word for European settlers. Ah, okay. You know, basically the, you know, the kind of how politeness is kind of politeness between two, what are now seen as equal partnership cultures growing ever closer together. Then there are colleagues at... uh, colleagues at uh, you know kind of the University of Wellington in New Zealand that are working on research in that area there's any number of things that I, any any number of, of 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 people I can put you in touch with for any number of aspects that you want to look at if it's cross cultural intercultural you know if it's you know um, you know kind of power relations if it's notions of impolite notions of trolling you know yeah mm. absolutely let me know I've, I've I could spend an hour talking (laughs) enthusiastically and at length about you know my colleagues' research globally. Um, But uh, yeah, if 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 uh, regular podcast listeners uh, basically have any particular interests of what they may want to see that they want to kind of uh, let you know, Phil, and then you want to let me know, I'm sure there'll be somebody who's doing quality research on it that I can put you in touch with. Well, there you go, then, fair listener. There's there's an open invitation for you to uh, to suggest some areas um, around what what um, Derek and I have talked about today. Uh, that we can uh, that we can explore some more. I I, I was really I was going to be really cheeky and, and use you um, use your family uh, abbreviation name for a moment there, and I caught myself. I thought, no, I won't, I won't, I won't. I'll, I'll be good. I'll be yeah, good. let's. Yeah, we we've had a really friendly we've had a really friendly conversation. Let's let's, let's not, not ruin it now. By, yeah. a, by a bit of misplaced mis mean a misfire banter. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, in that case, then I'll, I'll bring the podcast to a close and say, Dr. Bagsfield, thank you very much uh, for your time today. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and yeah, been really helpful just to sort of, sort of pull apart, but then also put back together um, the three key notions that we yeah. talked about today around banter and impliedness and power. So thank you. No, and it's been absolutely my, my pleasure, Phil. And please call me Derek. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Derek. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox, edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.